Today we are in uh, part three of our series, Behold. And if you haven't been here for the first two, uh, then I would encourage you to go online, lemmc.com. Uh, you can also find us on Vimeo, on the podcast. Man, we're, all, we're trying to get out there as much as we can. I would encourage you to go and listen to um, those first two sermons. Pastor Peter started us off, and then last week uh, we talked about, you know, uh, just this incredible opportunity that John had to make a name for himself when these Pharisees and these Levites and these priests came to ask him, who are you and what do you have to say about yourself? But all John kept doing was pointing the way to Jesus. And we concluded last week by saying this, I am not going to celebrate Christmas without celebrating Jesus. Because without Jesus, there is no Christmas. And so today we want to continue on uh, in that theme. But today we're going to actually get to that verse where we see this word being used, this word beholds. And if you use the NIV, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Instead of the word behold, it uses the word look. And we'll explain that in a little bit. But let me just ask you a quick question. Have you ever had to make a big announcement? Or any, any kind of announcement whatsoever? Just, you know, it's on you to make an announcement, to, to inform people, to maybe, you know, to give a very important announcement. It, it, that's a lot to have, uh, you know, placed on someone's shoes. But I remember a few years ago, I was at the Civic Center in Essex. And, um, you know, I had, to, I had to make this announcement. And I speak in front of people pretty much every week. I don't know if there aren't too many weeks that go by where I'm not in front of people talking in some way. So it's not necessarily difficult for me to be in front of people and to talk to people. But this was a little different. And there's a few reasons. Number one the most obvious was that I didn't write my own speech. It, it had to be worded a certain way because I was representing an, an organization in town, and so they wrote the speech for me, and I'm not used to that, and I found that a little difficult because they said they lined their sentences up differently, and because it's political, it had to be a certain way. And, and so, I, man, I, I read that thing over and over and over, and they wanted it memorized. They really didn't want me to have notes in front of me. So that made it a little, you know, I was a little nervous about that. Then the other one, there was actually a fair, bit of, fair number of politicians and mayors in the audience, and the, and the crowd wasn't nearly as big as this, but there was this smaller group of people, but in this crowd, we had our MPPs and our MPs and, and a few mayors, and that will do it to you every single time, and so I was a little bit nervous about that. And then, of course, you had the media out. You had the video cameras, and you had the cameras flashing, and then, of course, you have these people writing down everything, and you can't see what they're writing down, and so you're nervous, like, are they misquoting me, and, and you know, if you say something, they're going to write it down like that, and you can't later be like, oh, that's not what I meant to say, and so all of that stuff, I was a little bit nervous, and then lastly, I had to get this right. You see, there was, there was some people that I was working with, I worked with a, a committee in our town um, for our neighborhood safety and, and things like that, we worked with the OPP, and, and anyway, none of, it doesn't matter, but you know, these people were depending on me to get this out there and to get it out right. And that's a lot of pressure. Because you really only have one opportunity to make an impression with an announcement. If I was to come out here and say, oh, by the way, tonight, let's say you've never heard of this, tonight we're having a Christmas program, and I think it starts at 6, and I think it'd be good if you all came. I've just given you an impression. Probably the majority of you are going, uh, I don't think I'm going. Just by how I announced it. 
If I came up here on Sunday morning, you guys ready to hear me preach? I've just given you an impression. Okay, some of you are like, no matter what, yeah, sure. But I've just given you an impression. If I'm, if I'm walking like I don't care, your impression of me immediately is all right. See, guys, we guys, we understand first impression because all of us know that our first impression to our wife is what caused us to almost not get her, right? Now oh, you guys are all liars. You know it's true. She saw you pick your nose, and you're like, oh, I wish you hadn't seen that, you know? Whatever. It's first impressions that often get us into trouble. And so we, you can't undo a first impression. And when you make an announcement, when you make a big declaration, you can't undo how that first announcement comes across to people. And here today, we're going to find John. He's at this moment now where he's going to give the first declaration to people about who Jesus is. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 29. This is the verse we've been leading up to, and, and this is the verse where John finally has his moment. We've known why he's come. We know what his purpose is because we've read the story, but the people in the audience, the people that he's baptizing, the people who are waiting to be baptized, the people who've come to hear him preach, they haven't read what we've read. They're just there. They're just waiting to hear from John, to hear what he has to say. And now finally, this is John's moment, his first impression of the Messiah. And look at what he says. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, and this is the NIV version, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now no offense to the NIV, but I don't like that word look. And a lot of people have actually wrestled with why the NIV used that word because it's a very weak word to describe what John is saying. The, the word look kind of gives us impressions. Hey, take a glance. That'd be like me right now saying, hey, look at the clock. Some of you are like, oh, I want to, you know. Look at the clock. Hey, look at the usher standing in the back. You know, and basically what I'm saying is take a quick look and then back on me, please. But the word behold. Man, if I was like, hey guys, I want you to look back and behold that clock. That word immediately changes. Like, oh, what you're telling me to do is take, do much more than take a quick glance and then back at me. No, what John is literally doing with this word behold, he says, I want you to focus all over there. So let's read it from the ESV version. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold. That's where we get our word. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Last week we said that the word behold means see. It means <clears throat> to look upon, to experience, to perceive, to discern, to be aware, and to attend to. In essence, what John is saying here, to behold is to be fully aware the Lamb of God. Behold. Be fully aware. I want you to see. I want you to perceive. I want you to discern. I want you to be attentive to. I want you to be fully aware that right there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is doing much more here than telling people, take a quick glance at the Lamb of God and then focus back on me while I continue to baptize. John is literally saying, I want you to draw all your attention over to Jesus. 
And we focused on that a lot last week. Now I want you to jump to verse 30. Because he continues and he says, This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. See, John recognized right off the bat that Jesus was and is and is to come. So there's no competition even for John with Jesus because Jesus already recognizes that John, that Jesus, sorry, John already recognizes that Jesus has already always been. So it's simple, it's easy for John to say, behold the Lamb of God, focus only on Him because it doesn't matter what you think of me, it doesn't matter if He surpasses me because He already has surpassed me because He was before me. Now we find John again, he's in this place, and later on we're going to see he's, he's in this place, he's baptizing, sorry, in verse 35, we're going to jump again a little few verses, in verse 35, he now again is faced with this moment where he sees Jesus and he's now successfully announced the coming of the Messiah. But now look again in verse 35. Again, when he sees Jesus, look at what happens. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. See, John too had disciples. He had, he had a, mo- a group of disciples who were following him just like you know, Jesus had disciples following him. John had disciples following him and he's teaching them. So here he is with two of his disciples. Now look what happens in verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, again, in the NIV it says, look, but the ESV and other other translations say, behold the Lamb of God. Same thing again. He sees Jesus again and again. He's like, hey, behold the Lamb of God. Focus on him. Look at him. And again we see John completely drawing all of his attention to Jesus. Wanting people to embrace Jesus. Jesus. But I think what happens next may have come even as, may have been unexpected even to John. Look at verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So here's John with his two disciples. And he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God, and to everyone else that's around John. And sure enough, his own two disciples say, okay, okay, we'll go then, and we will follow Jesus. These, these are two of John's disciples. They look up to John. He would have been considered their teacher, but now, just like that, they pack up everything, in a sense, they desert John, and they follow Jesus. Now, I want you to know there's nothing in the narrative, in the story, that suggests that John expected it expected his own disciples to desert him. However, the implication is that he saw this as part of his mission in heralding and to proclaiming Jesus. So you got to understand for John and for you and I today, it's one thing to tell people that someone else is greater. It's a whole another thing to see people treat someone else as greater. John's been telling his disciples and he's been telling these other people, behold the Lamb of God, he who comes after me is greater than me. And now his own two disciples, or two of his own disciples, pack up their bags and go after Jesus. It's a whole nother thing when you see someone actually treat someone else as greater. So John's own disciples, his own personal disciples have now abandoned him and are following Jesus, the one who is greater. 
Now again, from the narrative, from the story, we don't get a sense that John is protesting them leaving. We, we don't sense at all that John is like, hey, 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 where are you guys going? He just, he just lets them go. And this falls right in line with what we talked about last Sunday. John's attitude was clearly that he wanted people to know that he was important, but he wanted people to know that someone else was most important. Someone else was much more important. And so now when his own disciples decide to leave, again, in John's mind, it seemed to make perfect sense. Why would you stick around me when I told you to focus on him? And after all, John himself was the one who was proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God. And now his own disciples have left him to follow Jesus. I want you to jump now to chapter 3 in your Bibles. Just uh, over a couple of pages to chapter 3 in the book of John. Because I think for most of us right now, we're probably not understanding, where's Ike going with this? You know, we say behold, and we're so glad that John was preaching this. But you've got to understand, for John, he was not just preaching this, he's living this. And you and I, today, I believe at the end, we're going to hear something that's going to change, I hope anyway, it's going to change our approach to Christmas from this day on. I really think it will. Because John's not just preaching something, he's living it. And his own two disciples are now saying, oh, okay, we'll do what you've preached. We'll do what you've been telling us to do. But we see it again in chapter 3, where it maybe would have been even more tempting for John to say, okay, I told you to behold the Lamb of God, but I didn't know it would cost me this much. I told you to behold the Lamb of God, but I didn't know it would come in this form. Because every one of us here today, we could easily say, oh yeah, yeah, Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is all about worshiping Jesus. Christmas is all about Jesus coming to this earth. But are we willing to live what that means? You see, now we get to this place where John all of a sudden now experiences something that, again, I don't know if he would have necessarily um, uh, knew that he would experience. See, John is again baptizing, and he's calling his disciples to him, and Jesus is also getting into the swing of ministry, and he has his disciples around him, and so here's these two movements, in a sense, that are now doing very similar work. It's almost as if though John is now being tested to see whether or not he will continue to be, proclaim Jesus as greater. John chapter 3, verse 22. Look, let's just take a look at the situation that happens. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Ammon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now, I'm just going to put this in, in, a, in, in some words, maybe it'll help you a little bit. You can picture this almost as if though there are now two denominations starting up. And because John was baptizing first, we're going to call John the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first Baptist. And Jesus, in a sense, is over here starting his own little movement called the Second Baptist Church. So you've got the First Baptist Church on this side and the Second Baptist Church on this side, and and they're both doing the same thing. Now that, that seems fine, but clearly there's going to be some tension that's going to come as a result of 
the fact that there are two groups of people now doing the same kind of work. Look at verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. This has nothing to do with Jesus. Okay, There's a certain Jew at one of John's baptism who gets all riled up about this baptizing and why are you not teaching the ceremonial washing that's required at the temple? Now, you need to understand it's really interesting that John writes about this and that John's, uh, John the uh, Baptist's disciples come and tell John about this. It's almost as if though they're looking for a way to address something else. I think this whole thing about the guy who has, who's worried about the ceremonial um, uh, washing, I think he's just a smokescreen of what John's disciples are really getting at. What are John's disciples so confused about? The dispute with the, the Jews seems to be a smokescreen of the real issue because the real issue comes up next in, in verse 26. Then they came to John and said, this is after they've said, there's a, you know, after they, they've realized that there's a dispute with this Jewish man. Look at what they say to John. Rabbi, okay, the man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. So we see this dispute with John's disciples in this man, this Jew who's worried about ceremonial washing, but when they come to talk to John about it, what do they bring up? They bring up the fact that, oh, by the way, this Jesus guy that you baptized is now over there baptizing just like you were. Now, the interesting thing is in John chapter 4, we read that, in chapter 4, verse 2, we read that it wasn't actually Jesus baptizing, it was Jesus' disciples, but nonetheless, John's disciples are possibly now in a moment where they become envious of the success that Jesus is having, and because they love their disciple, I mean, their, their teacher, John, they are now maybe a little bit bothered that here John has done so much work and, and he's lived a hard life and he's been out here baptizing first and he's the one that's kind of doing this and then he goes and baptizes their leader and now those guys are baptizing and having more success? Any of you feeling it a little bit? I, I don't like it when, you know, when you've worked hard on something and then someone else comes along and kind of rides your, your hard work. It's difficult. And I think for John's disciples, they're wrestling with this. I know you said, behold the Lamb of God, but I didn't know that would mean he would come and do the very thing we're doing. I didn't know that he would kind of come and put us out of business. We didn't know that he would be more successful. I don't know about you, but this brings some really raw emotions out for me. Because like John's disciples, I wrestle with the need for affirmation. I wrestle with people needing, with me needing people to tell me that I did good. For example, if I would go home today, and let's say we've had lunch, and we get to about 2 o'clock, and, and Maria has said nothing about my sermon, my wife Maria, I would begin to think that I must have just blown it bad. Because clearly it was so bad that she didn't even have the guts to say something. See, there's, 
There's something about the need for affirmation, and it's almost like John's disciples are now saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Why is all the attention, why is all the focus going over there? I know you said, behold, the Lamb of God, and I know you said that He is greater because He was before you and all that stuff, but we didn't know it would cost us literally giving up what we've been doing to allow Him to be more successful at at it. So let's not be too quick to jump on John's disciples because I think many of us here would maybe react in some of the, the same way. I think many of us here in the room, we totally get it. We totally get why they're like, hey, whoa, why is he doing what we used to do? After all, we started this. In an essence, what John's disciples, I think, are saying here is that because we started this, because we did this, we're more important I think this is why people patent their ideas. This is why your courts are filled with people arguing about who thought of what first because when we've done something first, we want people to know that we were the first to do it and we don't like it when someone else comes and does the very thing that we've been doing. You see, we don't understand what kind of sacrifice these disciples have made for John or what kind of sacrifices John has maybe made. And now things are not going quite the way they had wanted. Maybe they saw the success. They saw people are getting to know John and important people are coming to see him. And now all of a sudden, John, it just seems as ready to just give this all away to someone else. And John's disciples can't get it. They're really bothered by this. There's a lesson here for us. If we're going to see if we're going to look upon, if we're going to experience, if we're going to perceive, if we're going to be fully aware of Jesus, you can only do it one way, and that's to be humble. That's to be humble. Look at John's response. Now, before I read you his response, just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You've lived a difficult life. You've proclaimed the arrival of Jesus. Two of your own disciples, two of the people you've invested in, have just abandoned you and followed him. And now the thing that you were doing, the thing that you were successful in, the thing that kind of made you, as a matter of fact, it defines your name. John the Baptist. So if someone takes away your baptism, if if someone takes away your ministry, who are you, the John the who? Put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. Now look at how he responds to his disciples who are bothered about the fact that Jesus is out there doing what they were doing. Verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. What a humble approach. Basically what John is saying is you don't go to a wedding to watch a couple get married and then get jealous because they married each other. You don't go to a wedding and then you're like, oh man, I can't believe she married, didn't marry me. 
I can't believe she didn't marry, you know, you know, whatever, some other guy. You go to a wedding to see a couple get married, and if all of a sudden, right there in front of you, they would actually say, you know what, we're calling this off, you would actually be in distraught. You would be bothered. You wouldn't know what to do with it. You'd be out tweeting saying, oh my word, massive wedding fail. That's what you would be doing. But when they marry and when they kiss and when they joyfully bounce out of that room, you're full of joy. Because what was supposed to happen has just happened before your very eyes. And that's what John is saying here. This was meant to happen. And John's like, my joy is now complete because he must become greater and I must become less. Less of me, more of him. We ended, like I said last week, with this claim that I am not going to celebrate Christ, or I'm not going to celebrate Christmas without celebrating Jesus. And I want to just say to us again today, you cannot fully worship and celebrate the birth of Jesus with pride. And pride makes it about us. John had many opportunities to proclaim just how great he was. And here comes a guy who kind of rides off of John's hard work. You ever been in that situation at work? You've worked at something, worked at something, worked at something, and you almost have it done. Then the boss pulls you off, and some other guy walks in there and is like, oh, we just got to plug it in. And everybody's like, wow, what an amazing guy. And you're sitting there going, all I needed to do was plug it in. I got it ready to be plugged in, and now you're giving all, that, that, all the credit to that guy. And John's approach with Jesus is awesome. That gives me joy. You cannot fully worship Jesus if we are filled with pride. So we need to be humble. Now you may wonder a little bit, what does humility have to do with Christmas? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Humble yourself therefore before God, under God's mighty hand, and He that he may lift you up. There's something beautiful about the humility of God, or our humility before God. You see, when we humble ourselves before God, he doesn't rub us down. And I think sometimes we're afraid of that because sometimes when we're humble in, in, in our earthly environment, what happens is we get taken advantage of. If you're humble with your your coworkers, if you're humble with your neighbors, if you're humble even within your church, what, what all of a sudden happens is you find yourself being taken advantage of, but that's not the kind of way that, that's not the way humility works with God. With God, the more you humble yourself, the more he lifts you up. So what does humility have to do with Christmas? Let me just point to the story. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was born to Mary, a humble peasant girl. Nothing significant about her. I guess we could start even before that. Isn't it amazing that Jesus humbled himself and left his heavenly throne and came to earth? What about Joseph? He wasn't some king. He wasn't some warrior, some captain in an army. He was a carpenter, a humble carpenter. And he's given the role as the foster father to the Messiah. 
Bethlehem. Nothing really that exciting about Bethlehem. Yes, some very important people had been born there, but people didn't treat Bethlehem as if it was really that important. Bethlehem was just this humble little village. The very first to hear about the birth of the Messiah weren't kings and, and queens and royalty. They were humble shepherds out in a field doing a job that no one else wanted. Jesus wasn't born in some beautiful mansion in a five-star hotel, in the best of the best hospitals. No, he was born in a humble stable and in a manger where animals fed from. The wise men, these prestigious, smart astrologers, humbled themselves, bowed down when they came to Jesus some time after and gave him gifts. It would appear that humility has everything to do with Christmas. So here's, here's your takeaway today. To behold, we must be humble. To behold, we must be humble. I believe that the only way we are really going to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is to humble ourselves before Him. And I think that John just exercise this over and over again when people wanted to know who are you don't worry about me it's more about him when jesus says to his own when john says you know behold the lamb of god and his own two disciples are like okay see you later john it's been nice working with you we're gonna follow jesus blessings to you when jesus comes along and starts doing ministry that john in a sense was doing this baptism by repentance of repentance John's reaction is, he must become greater. I must become less. Tell me, how do you celebrate Christmas with pride? How do you celebrate Christmas with pride? You make it all about you. And I'm not here to dampen the mood of Christmas. Not at all. But you will celebrate Christmas in a whole new way when you do it with humility. So, to behold, we must be humble. And my prayer for you, as you go from here, as you experience moment after moment this year and different years where it's tempting to make it about you, that you will at that moment say again, behold, the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sin of the world. That was John's cry. That was John's mission. He didn't just preach it. He lived it over and over and over again. I invite the team to come up. And we're going to sing a song called Be Lifted Up. And uh, I, I pray that as we sing this song today, that we have a moment verbally, because sometimes we have to verbally do it before we can physically do it. And I know for many of you, Humility, you've had a lot of, you know, you exercise humility. But maybe today, again, for you, just maybe a fresh moment for you today. Say, my approach to Christmas hasn't been with humility. Oh, I love talking about how Jesus was born in a humble manger. But man, the cake and the decorations and the tree and the food, it had better all be perfect. Because if not, it just won't feel like Christmas. 
maybe for you today is just a moment again of saying, you know what, I just want to be humble. I want to celebrate Christmas this year with this concept of humbling myself before God so that the incredible gift that He's given me, His Son Jesus, he can be lift, I can be lifted up with Him in that. So Father God, I know for me, I, man, humility is not my strength. But I pray, God, that this year we would indeed sing and we would live, Jesus, be lifted up. Be lifted up. Over and over and over. Jesus, more of you and less of me. You must become greater, Jesus. We must become less. Jesus, I pray that you would be made known as we celebrate. I pray for tonight as the opportunity will be given for people to receive you. Oh, Jesus, I pray that hearts would be open to receive you as your Lord and Savior. I pray, God, as we are with family and maybe there are members of our family who are not believers, oh, Lord, I pray our humility and our approach to Christmas would somehow draw them to you that lives would be changed, hearts would be opened. Jesus, that's our prayer. Less of us, more of you. Lord, be lifted up. Amen. Let's stand.